the latest COVID-19 variant, what we know and what we don't. The Supreme Court weighing a case that could undo Roe v. Wade and the U.S. economy continues to crank out jobs. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to West Wing Reports. It's Friday, December 3rd. This COVID-19 pandemic just will not go away. This Omicron variant, it's now here in the U.S., and that's causing politicians and health officials to scramble to stay on top of it. President Biden Thursday said that his strategy will be to fight COVID not with lockdowns, but with more vaccines and boosters. As I explained on money, this new variant is cause for concern, but not panic. We know there be we knew there be cases uh, of this uh, of Omicron here in the United States, and it's here. But we have the best tools, the best vaccines in the world, and the best medicine, and the best scientists in the world. We're going to fight this variance with science and speed, not chaos and confusion. Just like we beat back COVID-19 in the spring, a more powerful variant, Delta variant, in the summer and fall. As a result. We entered this winter from a position of strength compared to where America was last winter. <clears throat> last Christmas, fewer than 1% of American adults were fully vaccinated. This Christmas, that number will be 77, 72%, including more than 86% of seniors, the most vulnerable population. Last Christmas, our children were at risk without a COVID-19 vaccine. This Christmas, we have safe, effective vaccines for children aged five and older with 20 million children and counting now vaccinated. But just what do we know and what don't we know about this variant? We'll go in depth with one of the world's top experts on infectious diseases, Dr. Seema Yasmin of Stanford University. Now, Dr. Yasmin, you're one of the world's top experts on infectious diseases. Let's just get right to it, this Omnicom variant. Just how dangerous is it? The truthful answer to that is that we don't know. And honestly, this far into the pandemic, we just have to be a lot better at communicating certainty and uncertainty, explain to the public the things that we do know, but also what the unknowns are. And while it's very predictable that we are in this situation, unfortunately, because of how viruses evolve, because we have this vaccine apartheid, you could call it, where so many people in the global south are unvaccinated, of course, we were going to be in this situation where new viral variants emerge. But it takes a while. It takes weeks to figure out, OK, exactly what sets this virus apart from previous versions of the virus that causes COVID-19. And then even once you've figured out what some of the mutations look like and where they are, and in this instance, we already know a little bit about that, Still, the most pressing questions are going to be, well, is this variant more transmissible than earlier versions of the virus? Right now, it looks like it is very transmissible. Is it more likely to send people to the hospital? We don't know that yet. Is it more likely to kill people? We don't know that yet either. And also, what impact will this have on the vaccines that we are currently using? Could this newer version evade the immune response that current COVID vaccines offer us? And we don't have the answer to that just yet. Well, that's certainly the big question. I mean, first, you just uh, acknowledged, I think we all read it over the weekend, Seema, that uh, yes, it uh, it spreads 
quickly, obviously uh, not good news. But if it can kind of get around these defenses that we have now in terms of existing vaccines, and you say, boy, that's a big uh, mystery, that is a huge question that has to be answered. How long is it going to take for us to get some clarity on that? I think maybe another couple more weeks. We already know that Omicron has more mutations than the Delta variant, which has become the dominant strain of the virus. This version of the virus, the Omicron version, also looks like it has as many mutations as we've seen in every other variant that's come before this. But again, that doesn't mean that we have certainty around those questions of, is it more likely to send you to the hospital? Is it more likely to kill you? And what does this mean for the vaccines? We still need a few more weeks. What do you know about how this originated? It originated in the way that all viral variants do, in that when you have high rates of transmission of a virus, when a virus is quickly jumping from one person to another, that gives the virus every opportunity to make new versions of itself. And when you get those new versions, of course, the ones that are very fit, the ones that are faster, the ones that are more advantageous to the virus, those are the ones that get selected for its survival of the fittest, basically. And those are the ones that can, like Delta, become the dominant strain. Of course, what we know now is that this variant emerged in South Africa. We should not ever call it the South African variant because we don't know exactly where it originated. What we do know is that South Africa was doing good sequencing of the genomes of viruses being spread in that country. And so they were doing good science. They were being honest and diligent and transparent with the rest of the world in sending this alert. And now, of course, what's happened is South Africa and neighboring regions, neighboring countries are being punished for doing surveillance, for being transparent in the form of these travel bans, which have huge economic consequences, which directly impact then what resources and political will those countries have to properly fight the pandemic. Now, all other experts have said in the last uh, day or two that obviously the best defense here, as it has been all along, is to be vaccinated. I suppose the current question, given that there's so much that we simply don't know about this, how do we know that the current crop of vaccines, the Pfizer, the Moderna vaccines and so forth, how do we know that all that is going to be sufficient to deal with this variant? And if we need a new vaccine, are we back to square one where it's going to take another you know, crash effort in a year to come up with something? I mean, what are we looking at? That's a great question because, of course, we're saying, hey, everyone, we don't have all the answers about this new variant. But at the same time, please go get vaccinated. If you're fully vaccinated, please go get your booster. The reason we still say that is because vaccines have a buffer zone. So they might be really, really, really highly efficacious against the dominant strain circulating right now or the original version of the coronavirus. But because of that buffer, they're still likely to offer good protection against newer versions. The question really is, how good. It's not like we're saying the vaccine is an on-off switch or it works against these variants. It does not work at all against these variants. We're saying it's more like a dimmer switch. And what the, the question that we need to answer is exactly how protective is it against these newer variants? And while we're answering that, the question, the, the main point still is, 
go get vaccinated. And of course, what we're seeing is this really big disparity where in Africa, on average, across African nations, about 7% of people are fully vaccinated. And in the developing world, it's closer to 70% in some places. In South Africa, fewer than one in four South Africans is fully vaccinated against COVID-19. And that's really how we end up in these situations where newer and newer variants keep evolving. That's interesting. I mean, you know, we started with the COVID-19, as everybody knows, and then we had the Delta variant. And uh, I guess about a year later, we have this, are these mutations occurring at kind of a normal rate of speed or can mutations pick up? I mean, could there be another one in a year or in three months? I mean, how does, how does this work? Different viruses evolve at different rates. People may be aware that HIV can become resistant to anti-HIV drugs quite quickly if you don't take those medicines properly. So it's a different threshold for different viruses. We've always known that in the case of these particular viruses, coronaviruses, of course, evolution can happen. In the last year, we've also gotten really good data about how much better coronaviruses, especially this one that causes COVID-19, can evolve to develop these newer versions inside the bodies of people who have weakened immune systems. And that's likely because those people with compromised or weakened immune systems tend to have longer infections. The viruses are living inside their body for longer, sometimes for upwards of 100 days. And so that's a significant factor here as well. And again, it comes back to, you know, you mentioned uh, vaccines earlier. It's not that we're saying just get vaccinated. There's nothing in isolation that's going to work here. It's like a, a suite of things that we need to do to fight this pandemic. And vaccines are really central, one of those things. But then there's also wearing a mask, hand hygiene, physical distancing is all of those things together that are going to give us a fighting chance against this. You know, and on that front, this pandemic is nearly two years old now. There are still millions of Americans who simply refuse to get vaccinated. What is your message for them? Yeah, there's likely 60 million Americans. And so we need actually very many different messages to reach all of those people, Paul, because you talk to 12 people who have varying levels of confidence or hesitancy around the COVID vaccine. And you might get 12 really different reasons as to why they haven't gotten the COVID vaccine yet. But again, for everybody, I would say that these vaccines are safe. They are quite effective. They are one of our best tools in the fight against this pandemic. And that really it's not just, it feels like a very personal decision and it is, but it's also an act of civic duty of being a good neighbor to get vaccinated. And vaccines really are one of our best ways out of this pandemic and out of this situation where like last summer, we thought things are going to start to get back maybe, and then they didn't. And now we're kind of in this situation again, where we're seeing Israel, Japan, completely close down their borders, the UK reinstate mandatory masking in some places. And it kind of feels like going backwards vaccines, if we have herd immunity and if we have many more people have access to them in the global south and many more people choose to take them in the developed world where they are available, it can really help us get out of this situation. All right, Dr. Simi Yasmin of Stanford University, also Cambridge University, among other elite institutions earlier in her life. Her most recent book, by the way, I just love this title, Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We 
fall for them. And she has a new one coming out in the fall of 2022. I've got to be careful when I say this. It's called What the Fact. You can, you can say that incorrectly if you're not too careful. It's called What the Fact, Finding the Truth in All the Noise. That's by Simon & Schuster in the fall of 2022. Dr. Simi Yasmin, as always, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. To Capitol Hill now, all eyes on the Supreme Court, which is hearing a case that could mean the end of Roe v. Wade, the landmark abortion rights case. Now, this is complicated, but the essence of the case is this. It centers on a Mississippi law that would ban almost all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Lower courts blocked the law, ruling that it violates Roe v. Wade, which dates to 1973. The lower courts also said it violates another key abortion rights case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which dates to 1992. Now, in that case, the court ruled that states cannot ban abortion before what's called fetal viability, the point at which a fetus can survive outside the womb. Right now, that's considered to be between 22 and 24 weeks of pregnancy. That's the background. Here's what happened in the Supreme Court this week. The court heard nearly two hours of arguments on the Mississippi law against the one banning abortions after just 15 weeks of pregnancy. The Mississippi Solicitor General arguing for the ban after 15 weeks says that Roe v. Wade, quote, haunts our country. But pro-choice groups say the right to an abortion is a woman's right and not for lawmakers to decide. One justice, Elena Kagan, said that the Supreme Court should be seen as being above politics, meaning that it cannot be, quote, a political institution that will go back and forth, depending on what part of the public yells loudest, and preventing people from thinking that the court will go back and forth, depending on changes to the court's membership. A ruling on the Mississippi law is expected in June. No matter what happens, it'll be a blockbuster. Meanwhile, what do polls show about this? Well, three out of five adults, 59 percent, say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. That's according to the Pew Forum. That number has held steady. It was 60 percent in 1995. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Another 210,000 jobs added to the economy in November. That's 6.1 million for the first 11 months of the year. That's more jobs 
than the last seven years combined. The unemployment rate now 4.2%, down four-tenths of a point in just one month. That so many jobs have been added so quickly this year, more than 6 million, reflects a lesson that the Federal Reserve and other policymakers have learned from prior downturns. That lesson is go big and go fast and create conditions that get people back to work quickly. Here's economist Julia Coronado, the president and founder of Macro Policy Perspectives. One of the reasons for the aggressive policy response during COVID was that the last labor market recovery wasn't a success. It was too slow. Uh, it lasted too long. It hurt too many uh, people. Uh, and so the idea of going big and going early was based on the objective of getting to maximum employment faster uh, so that you don't do as much damage to people, to, to the people in the labor market. And that's going really well. The labor market recovery is proceeding very quickly, much more quickly than the last two. Uh, you know, labor demand is strong. And so now it's really up to workers to sort of sort through their different circumstances in terms of health and childcare and so on. And there's still some frictions there. But at a minimum, what, what they know is that there's jobs available, and that's an unambiguous victory uh, in terms of this cycle versus last cycle. This jobs recovery is nationwide, no doubt about it. Other Labor Department data shows that unemployment is now lower in 386 of 389 metro areas, all but three from a year ago. Another data point, gas prices, they are down about 1% from recent highs. That's according to AAA national data. 1%, not much, but they are now beginning to fall. Another reminder of the threat that our democracy faces. Recently, Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, she's a Democrat, was verbally attacked by Colorado Republican Lauren Boebert. Boebert joked sort of about getting on an elevator with Omar and thought it was probably okay because Omar wasn't wearing a backpack, meaning she was not a suicide bomber. She later apologized sort of for that crack. Now, here's where it really gets nasty and dangerous. News coverage of this sort of thing often leads to the dregs in our society, and I believe it's objective and factual to use that term, to crawl out from under a rock and threaten Omar. She is always getting threats. She played one of them for us this week. Listen very carefully. We see you, nigger bitch. We know what you're up to. You're all about taking over the country. Don't worry, there's plenty that will love the opportunity to take you off the face of the fucking earth. Come get it, you fucking Muslim piece of shit, you jihadist. We know what you are. You're a fucking traitor. You will not live much longer, bitch. I can almost guarantee you that. 
So here's my question. Why in this country do some people consider it acceptable to threaten others with death just because they happen to hold different opinions or because they're members of a different religion? It bears repeating that it is against the law to threaten a member of Congress with bodily harm, just as it's against the law to physically attack police officers during a storming of our capital. In a minute, I'll open up the West Wing Report's archives and take a look at what made history this week in the past. First, let's hear about another Evergreen podcast that I know you'll enjoy. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Now let's take a look at what made history this week in the past. 1955, a young black woman in Montgomery, Alabama, was told to give up her seat on a bus so a white person could sit down. That woman, Rosa Parks was her name, was exhausted. She refused and was arrested. Thus began one of the key moments of the civil rights movement, the Montgomery bus boycott. Parks would write, I had been pushed around all my life and felt at this moment that I couldn't take it anymore. She became a hero to millions of Americans. She was honored years later. It's a long way from the suffering that we endured in Alabama. But for some reason, I had the faith and I prayed that we would one day not have to be insulted, mistreated, and sometimes physically hurt and often killed because we just wanted to be free people. An act of Congress later labeled Rosa Parks the first lady of the civil rights movement. She passed in 2005. 1970, President Nixon, concerned about water and air pollution in the United States, created the Environmental Protection Agency. And 1993. Twelve years ago, my life was changed forever by a disturbed young man with a gun. Until that time, I hadn't thought much about gun control or the need for gun control. Maybe if I had, I wouldn't be stuck with these damn wheels. But Sarah led the charge, and I followed in her footsteps because I know firsthand the damage that guns can do. It is that knowledge that I have tried to share with lawmakers, with voters, and with children. That's James Brady during the 1981 assassination attempt against President Ronald Reagan. Brady was shot in the brain. He lived and became a gun control advocate. In 1993, President Bill Clinton signed the Brady Bill requiring handgun buyers to wait five days for a background check before being allowed to buy a gun. Speaking of being a gun control advocate, Reagan himself was a big supporter of the Brady gun bill. He said stricter gun controls could help reduce violence. The former president lobbied lawmakers and wrote newspaper editorials calling for greater gun control. 
One more history. Check out my books on Amazon. I'll sign them for you, too. Just shoot me an email, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. And need a speaker for your event? I do that, too. Current events, economics, analysis, history. I connect the dots and would love to hear from you. By the way, I have an app, too. West Wing Reports, available everywhere. Just download it on your phone. There's a button called What's on Your Mind? Just push talk, and send. And the question I have for you, how do you rate President Biden's job performance so far? He's been in office nearly a year. How do you think he's doing? Again, just push, talk, and send. I'd like to end each week with a quote, something you might find thoughtful. This week, it's from Martin Van Buren. Nobody ever talks about Martin Van Buren anymore, so why not give him a plug? Anyway, he said, as to the presidency, the two happiest days of my life were those of my entrance upon the office and my surrender of it. It seems that some men tried their whole lives to become president, only to realize that the presidency can be a horrible job. Others, like Theodore Roosevelt and Bill Clinton, though, loved every minute of it. Well, in Clinton's case, almost every minute. Anyway, that's all for this week. West Wing Reports is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer, sound designer, and engineer wearing three hats at once, Noah Fouts. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. And I'm Paul Brandis in Washington. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.